This episode of Higher Ed Happy Hour is brought to you by Helix Education, the leader in data-driven enrollment growth. For more than 40 years, Helix Education's enrollment growth solutions, including outsourced program management, enrollment marketing, and retention services, have helped colleges and universities successfully find, enroll, retain, teach, and graduate post-traditional learners. To learn more about how data can drive your institution's enrollment growth, visit helixeducation.com slash happy hour. And hello, and welcome to the latest Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. My name is Kevin Carey. I direct the Education Policy Program at uh, New America. I am joined today by my regular co-host, Libby Nelson from Vox.com. Hi, Libby. Hi, Kevin. Um, And today's uh, guest host, uh, Jason Delisle, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and until recently, a colleague of mine here at New America. In case listeners thought that Washington, D.C. was just one big incestuous group of people who all know each other. That's basically true. Um, Jason uh, worked here uh, for a long time um, as the head of our federal education budget project um, and is now returning um, because his colleague, Andrew Kelly, left AEI and went to North Carolina. Hi, Jason. Hi. Uh, Jason uh, has brought today's alcohol. Jason, what are we drinking? Uh, We're drinking a red wine. Okay. Uh, but I've been told I need to be more specific than yes. that. Um, it is a French red wine. It's a Vaucheros, which is a sub-region of the Rhone region, and nice. it is Grenache and Syrah. All right. Cheers. Cheers. We have... Cheers. We can only find one, <laughs> one glass glass, and so the pleasant clinking sound that you would expect is gone because Libby and I are drinking from plastic cups. But, so. What happened to the glass? We had I don't glass know, I couldn't glasses find last it. time. I don't know. We just had an event or something. Things are going downhill sure. around here. Mm-hmm. We have nice wine glasses over at AEI. Well, so um, I, yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. I'm sure there's a lot of like Cersei Lannister like toasting over at AEI, you know, on your balconies and so on. Um, so today, you know, just a little context. It is as we uh, record this. Uh, it is Wednesday, October nineteenth. It is four o'clock. We are. Five hours from the third and mercifully final presidential debate. We were six um, and a half hours from the end of the third presidential debate. Right, even more importantly. Um, and uh, I think as I talked about in our last podcast, I sort of feel like this uh, uh, presidential campaign has sort of loomed over the entire life of the podcast. We started in January of 2015, and its its shadow has grown longer and longer as it has gone across all of American society. And so, But this will be the last one. This will be the last podcast recorded. Um, uh, during this campaign. Um, so that's something to be grateful for. And so my plan was uh, uh, we would get as far away from the campaign as possible and we would get go super, super deep on a very important but not entirely well understood issue, uh, that being the federal government's um, system of income-based loan repayment and loan forgiveness, um, of which Jason is, I think it's fair to say, the world's expert on that topic and knows literally more than anybody and has done a lot of um, the most important analysis around these programs. And then last week, after I made this decision, Donald Trump, on the same, now you may not have known that, on the same day that he gave his speech uh, claiming that a shadowy cabal of international financiers was conspiring with the Clinton campaign to rig the election. And I, I think I'm quoting verbatim. And the media. And the media. I'm sorry, and the media. Later that day, he gave a different speech in which he actually put out a proposal about income-based repayment and public service loan forgiveness. So we can't even escape the campaign. We are, we, and I mean, and actually like probably not a good proposal, but not a crazy proposal, right? Like a proposal that was like within the boundaries of proposals that one could do. Um, 
Yeah. So, so I guess we can talk about that, but it kind of makes me sad. Yeah, it, it I mean, this is a little bit the story story of everybody's life right now. Story of my life for the past month, if I seem uh, cranky today, has been I have a plan and Donald Trump does a thing and my plan is uh, right. reduced to smithereens. So welcome to my world, Kevin. Yeah. So, we could, so of course, you know, I, I have been thinking, because I do feel I've watched all three debates and each time I've felt sort of a little sick to my stomach in anticipation and then felt bad about myself afterwards. And I'm thinking, well, so maybe this could be the beginning of the debate pregame. I've been sort of thinking, can I just keep this thing going, starting with the higher at happy hour all the way to nine o'clock? No, I have a wife and a small child. Probably not. That probably wouldn't be wise. But uh, um, uh, one one can dream. Um, so before we get into PLSF uh, and all the rest of it, um, uh, I guess not that much else has been going on in higher ed. Um College football is still happening. So my question to you, Libby, is I have no idea how Northwestern is doing. Uh, better, oddly. Better? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We beat Michigan State at home this weekend. It was one of the odd oh, really? experiences wow, okay. of my life. Yeah. Okay. I just see, I didn't um, realize that. I just knew that Ohio State beat Wisconsin uh, away and thought that was cool. Um, so that's good. So my question was, like, because you're a native of Nebraska. I mm, sort of. Sort of. You have Nebraska roots. I have Nebraska roots. My so, parents are from Nebraska. I'm from okay. Kansas. So, so, eh, tomato, tomato. Um, <laughs> so, like, I, my, my, I was wondering whether or not you were going to, like, jump on some kind of Nebraska bandwagon since Nebraska's good this year again. <laughs> in the any, past, I would have. I mean, it's, it's a little complicated now that they and Northwestern are in the same division. I had a great deal growing up where I could root for Nebraska in football and Kansas, KU in basketball and never right. lose. Um but no, I mean Nebraska is my Nebraska is my second team in the way that Nat, the Nats were my second baseball team and the Cubs are my tertiary baseball team. Okay. Um, Wait, what's your primary baseball team? Uh, the Royals. The Royals. Oh, yeah, of course. I, have, of course. I am in fact from Kansas City. Of course. Yes, and okay. if anyone was on Twitter with me for the past two years, I feel right, like right, right. I feel like yeah. they know that. Um, no, I, I did know that. I remember. But the, it's been a while, so you know. I yeah. mean, yes, I guess I, in theory, wish good things for Nebraska more than but most other more Big Ten that. teams. They already beat us, so I guess it looks good if they yeah. if they went out. Okay. But, yeah, I forgot about the Royals thing. That was good. I felt good for the Royals. They felt like they deserved it. Small market mm-hmm. team, played the game the right way. They beat the, they beat the Giants too, right? Um, at some point, probably. They, it's, yeah. I, the two, no, they the lost past, to the Giants. The past then, two seasons have run together to me a yeah. little bit. Yeah, they lost to the Giants um, and then last yeah. year beat the Mets. So you're on the Cubs now. Now that it's Ish. the Cubs and the Giants. In the sense that I am yeah. like vaguely aware of anything going on that right. doesn't have Donald Trump in it. And do you have any football loyalties, Jason? I uh, I don't. Is this a, this isn't a sports podcast? No, no, no. It's not a sports podcast. Yeah, yeah. We're just warming up. Student loan podcast. Yeah, this is student loan podcast. Okay, good. Broad higher education questions. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't have any loyalties. No, none. Um, I mean, there were sort of so before we get to the student because I think once we get into the student loan stuff, we will get in deep. But uh, there were a couple (laughs) other parts of the Trump higher agenda which were sort of interesting. There was the. Um, he cited the uh, much maligned and discredited Vanderbilt University um, study of uh, administrative costs. Oh yes, yeah. Uh, the you know the I think essentially debunked allegation that Vanderbilt pays 150 million dollars in unnecessary regulatory costs or something as as part of a like we're going to get rid of all the regulations. So that made me sad that that thing is still alive. Um, it, but it's probably uh, not dead if you Google higher education regulation costs. <laughs> right. What I was thinking was, is that still getting play in like uh, yeah. Daily Caller, Breitbart world? Because it was, it's kind of an, like, to be honest, it's an, I think I've been seeing that the entire time I've been doing this. So that's seven years now. I can't remember exactly when it came out. No, this is when it came out last year. Oh, so like, okay. So the, the precursor the, yeah. to that, I feel that I had been seeing for, for mm. years. Um, yeah. But yeah, it must, it, it, it 
that was such an odd choice. It's yeah, a, it's a good lesson though in that if there's a thing that people think is happening, but right. there's no number to measure that thing, right? And then you come and up, you come up with one. It's it I, probably I think, not go away. I think you've just revealed the think tank racket too, <laughs> um, Jason. So 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 shh. No, no, I think that's right. Right? There's, there's not like some second or third study out there that that also alleges to answer this question that people that you know is it's a legitimate question to ask and it's not wrong to wonder and it's just that that study um they so first of all they they like for a while wouldn't tell anyone in the, like in the best tradition of uh academic peer review and transparency and full disclosure wouldn't even say how they came up with the number until the like a lot of journalists like, i think goldie blumenstick actually yes yeah the chronicle did some good work on this hassled them and then it turned out that almost all the numbers were like uh like you know overhead that you pay for research right so you get a research grant and and but like they would get it so like you know they would they would get a research grant and then charge some huge overhead and then somehow they counted that as the money they were paying or something like that it was really it was like really super right, unfortunate right it's not yeah. so much a regulation as it is a yeah. if you'd like this money <laughs> right do this yeah so there was that um uh Trump's can end political correctness um, on America's campuses. Yeah, this is a, I mean, yeah. this is kind of a trap for the, for folks on the right. And it was disappointing to see that he went there. Um, you know, the, the RNC, you know, I, I don't know if they had this in their platform this year, um, but they have in the past is this concern over political correctness, college campuses, left-leaning professors, right. um, which it's perfectly fine if, yeah. if you want to sort of name and shame, um, but a wholly different thing if you want policies that right. are supposed to correct this. Yeah. Right. This was uh, a big Ben Carson thing, I believe. Um, and Ben Carson at some point was advising Trump on education. So that would be my guess for the genesis of that, that yeah. particular part. Yeah, because I've said, well, you know, to my fellow conservatives and Republicans, mm-hmm. you know, well, look, if, if you're supposed to be the... We don't regulate. We don't want to meddle. We want people to be able to choose. But we also would like to have some sort of say in, in what majors people are taking and w- what the political leanings are of the professors. Those things don't seem to go together at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I think actually uh, in some ways, like from a broad conservative movement standpoint, the last thing they should do is stop colleges from being stupid because the college provides so many examples of like stupid liberalism that can be then used as a counterpoint to the movement, right? I mean, like if you list like all the stuff that you say, you know, support us because we're against that nonsense, what percentage of that nonsense came from a college campus? More than half? You know, I mean, I mean... Uh, and and it's and most of it is kind of inconsequential, like I mean, consequential for the people, but they tend to be these sort of like individual things that happen here or there or whatever, and you can just like go on Fire's website and and just find whatever it is that they're working on. Which you know, I, as a as a liberal, two times out of three, I think they're right about stuff. You know, they're like like oh yeah, that's some crazy free speech nonsense. The other time, the one time out of three, I'm not. You know, I mean, it's not unanimous, but. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I had an email from some reporter saying, "What would that? What would this mean?" And other than like rolling back the kind of OCR Title IX enforcement that got ramped up under Obama, which, by the way, since we've talked about that so much on here, I feel like we should note, sort of, not apropos to Trump, um, that the Education Department just pursued sanctions or slapped on the wrist or something a college for being unfair to uh, the accused. Yeah, it was in one Wellesley. Of those scenarios, Wellesley. Which, yeah, which just feels worth yeah. noting because this is they something did. we've talked about so much. They did. Uh, they, and I was a little surprised yeah, by that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like the first time it's happened, right? Yeah. So well, so yeah, of, yeah, it was by default, default yeah. surprising. So I, I could see something like that. I mean, yeah. 
you can certainly sort of change. You could, I guess you could think about OCR civil rights stuff in the context of political speech in the way that uh, the Bush administration did right. with the voting rights stuff. Um, but I don't know, you know, I mean, trying to come up with policies out of it. Yeah. I mean, it just, I, I do, it does, it is consistent, I think, with the sense that, like, there's obviously a lot of uh, daylight between Trump ideas, rhetoric, person, philosophy, and what we think of as, like, quote, mainstream conservatism. But, like, one of the biggest daylights is not being restrained by a commitment to small government. Like, I, I just don't think there's anything about Trump that is small government at all. You know, I mean, he has lots of ideas that some of which sort of overlap with, you know, Republican. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think it's a coincidence that he's the Republican candidate as opposed to the Democratic candidate, but he's like almost the epitome of like big government conservatism, whatever one thinks that might mean. Well, and this um, was then th this is what you saw in his student yeah. loan proposal. Right. Which is why I yeah. was shocked. So that's an excellent segue, mm -hmm. Jason. Um, so I want to before we get into Trump and all the rest of it, I think it would be helpful. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind just explaining to our listeners and take as much time as you need. What are we talking about when we talking about income based repayment and student loan? Like, what is the system now and how did we get here? Um, so the system now is there, if you want to go to college and you get a loan, the federal government will make you a loan. Um, and unlike traditional loans like a mortgage or an auto loan where you pay back a fixed payment that's based on the amount you borrowed and the interest rate, uh, in the federal student loan program, you have the option, everybody has the option to pay back their loan as a percentage of their income. So this is what income-based repayment is. And this is if you take out a federal loan, so not a private loan from like Bank of America but a federal loan. That's right. And um, about 90% of the loans or 95% of the loans being issued today for college are federal student loans. Uh, and there, so there are, there are more than one of these programs. Uh, th yes. It, it's it, the best way to think of it is all sort of one program. Um, and there are, there are some minor differences in the terms. There used to be bigger differences in the terms right. of the programs, uh, and they've all sort of melded together. So more or less everyone who has a federal student loan can, can get the same terms of, of income based repayment. And, uh, specifically speaking, what that is, is it's, uh, 10% of your discretionary income. So discretionary and not. So discretionary income is... All the income that you earn each year above um, one and a half times the poverty rate. So for a single person, that's about seventeen thousand okay. dollars. So every dollar over seventeen thousand. So it's like a deduction. It's so like, like a, it's like a seventeen thousand dollar deduction. Yeah. Sort of like an income tax deduction. Yes. Okay. It's, it's a seventeen thousand dollar, and it, it increases with your household size. Okay. All right. So it's sort of like the so uh, two people or kids or dependents that kind of thing. Yeah, you would okay. add you would add to it. So somehow. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so it's it's ten percent of your income, and then if you're like a if you have a private sector job, you pay ten percent of your income for twenty years, and then the government will forgive the balance. So I would add a caveat: you pay okay. ten percent of your income until you repay the loan. Okay, right. Yeah. Or right. twenty years. Or twenty years. Whichever happens first. Right. So if you pay it off, then it's paid off. Yes. But if it's if there's anything left after twenty years. You then essentially have to like fill out an application for loan. I mean, we haven't gotten there yet, right? We haven't really gotten there yet. Yeah. No. And so we, ha and I think this is important too. So walk us through the history of how this was created, like when it started okay. and how it was changed. Sure. Um, the the history is, you know, the the theory around having an income based repayment program has sort of been out there for a long time, um, for decades. Um, 
And uh, Congress got close to sort of realizing this in the 90s when they added an income-based repayment benefit to the student loan program. But it wasn't very generous. It was 20% of your income. Uh, it was 25 years for your loan forgiveness, and it only applied to about a third of the loans that were being made. So it just really wasn't used very much, wasn't very generous. Uh, and uh, some advocacy groups made a really good point uh, around 2006, so this is many years after this program was first created, uh, that, you know, if you default on your student loan and then the government garnishes your wages, they only take about 15% of your income. So using this repayment program of 20% of your income is actually punitive relative to just defaulting on your loan. Mm -hmm. And and so lawmakers at the time around 2007 said, gee, yeah, that's a pretty, that's a, that's a pretty good case. Um, maybe we should change the terms. And, and so this was, this was President Bush, but it was a Democratic Congress? So it was Democratic Congress, newly elected Democratic Congress, uh, both House and Senate. And, uh, and, 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 you know, Bush's second to last year, right, in office. And so they added, they changed the income-based repayment program uh, to be 15% of income uh, instead of 20. Uh, but loan forgiveness would occur again after, would be, still be 25, 25 years. 25 years. And you could use it on any federal student loan. Including FEL loans? Including the old guaranteed student loan okay. program. So if you, whether you took out a a student loan from a bank or directly from the federal government because that was a choice you could make until 2010. Yeah. They were they all applied. That's right. Okay. So so now you have a more generous program that makes a little more sense within the other terms that are available and it's available to borrowers no matter which kind of loan program they're using as long as it's a federal loan. Okay. Um, so that program gets enacted, Bush signs it into law, uh, and it takes about a year and a half for the Department of Education to actually issue regulations. And at this point, um, so no one could actually use it until 2009. And that's important because uh, just a few months after uh, the program became available, uh, President Obama, in his State of the Union address in January 2010, says, let's make it 10% of income instead of 15 and 20-year loan forgiveness instead of 25. And it came out of nowhere. This is newly elected President Obama. This is, was this his first, like, just it, got elected in 2008, hope change, all that? That's right. So okay. this is January 2010. Pause before we keep going. Was public service loan forgiveness already a thing at this point? Yes. All right, so we're going to go back and do that? Let's go back and talk about okay. that. Okay. So part of the original income-based repayment program that was enacted in 2007, um, we talked about how there would be loan forgiveness after 25 years. Mm -hmm. They added an additional benefit. Congress added an additional benefit in that original law in 2007, which was if you were working in a public service job, then you would get loan forgiveness a lot earlier, at 10 years. Ten. Right. Uh, and they defined public service uh, as... Um, Pretty much so anything that isn't for-profit. Right. Uh, so you're a public servant. I'm a public servant. Libby is not a public servant. We're doing okay. public service right now, Kevin. Okay. She's not. She's not. I'm a, not. Yeah. She's <laughs> not a public servant. I'm, I'm... But a reporter at NPR is. Right. Right. Okay. <laughs> doing right. the same job. Okay. Um, so so, so that, was, that was a sort of ride-along benefit with the original right. program. It was, it was 10 years. Was it 10, 10 years and also, but it was still 15%? It was still 15%. 15% of income, yeah. but 10 years instead of 25. So a huge difference. A huge difference. Okay. And, and I'll point out, and, and some people think, well, 10 years is a long time. It wasn't 10 consecutive years. It was 10 cumulative years. Okay. Uh, in fact, it wasn't even years. It was months. It was 120 20. cumulative months of work, right? So you, you could okay. bounce in and out. It, it didn't necessarily matter. And your payment had to have been, you didn't have to do it under IBR. It could be just regular payments. But since regular payments are amortized to 10 years, effectively, no it's the same, no benefit, right? Okay. No benefit. All right. 
So now it's 2009, it's the first State of the Union. Right. So 2010, first State of the, well, first official State of the Union, January, and out of the blue, nobody, nobody saw it coming. He says, I'm going to make this a lot more generous. Right. Uh, I'm going to lop five off both of the numbers. Okay. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to lop five off the 25-year loan forgiveness. It's going to be 20 years. And I'm going to lop five off the 15% income. It's going to be 10. Right. Um, which should, which should be sort of suspicious, right? Sort of like, wait a minute, that's like, where do those numbers come from? Somebody clearly just, somebody was doing sort of like what Trump did. Hey, right. let's just, let's just take something that exists and lop a couple numbers off of it. Five is a nice, nice number. Um, and, uh, so, and here's another thing that, that was, was, was an issue with this was, uh, so Obama proposes it late January, Congress signs it into law six weeks later. Uh, as part of the healthcare law, right? So it wasn't even, it was just riding alongside this Wait, much so bigger this, bill. So this is, so Wait. it was January 2010 then? Because the healthcare law was in 2010. Okay, so it wasn't his first State of the Union. Did his first official it? State of the Union address. His first official State of the Union. Because you don't so give he one. Made, he made that address you don't give um, one. in 2009 that was okay. all about, yeah. um, uh, okay. and this I believe was part of, if it was included, it was because the uh, direct loan changeover was also included. If I'm right on that. All right. So this, so this wasn't. This was in your first official state. You have to have been president for a year before you. I, I don't know. What yeah, there's is. like an inaugural address to Congress, which oh, is where the 2020 okay. right. goal right. came so from. So you've been for a year. Um, so this was January. So it was January 2010. Yes. In his first day of the union, so yes. the whole healthcare thing was happening. So like we, so Obamacare passes in April or whatever what is March. March. and we kill the Fell program, That's which is a huge thing, and then this gets thrown into that. That's right. So, and so it was like, okay, all right. So just gets thrown into the mix along with this other. It's thrown into the mix, right? Okay. And so, and so this is actually, this is sort of like okay. setting the stage, right? For like, here's a, here's a really big policy change that is gone from proposal to enactment in six weeks, riding alongside a much, you know, a much bigger legislative agenda. A much bigger agenda. thing that was itself riding alongside an even much bigger thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's all relative. So, um, but, but Congress, uh, but but the program, even at that time, was thought to cost a little bit too much. And so what Congress did to make the numbers work was they would phase it in. Okay. So these changes to income-based repayment uh, were to not take effect uh, for new borrowers. It would be new borrowers as of 2014. Okay. But then the Obama administration, um, uh, I, I guess what I should say, I, I guess if I was being um, a little bit snarky, I would say right. found, right. found a regulatory loophole. Snarky found a loophole right. to essentially and effectively accelerate the start date right. of that law uh, and then made all past borrowers eligible for it. Okay. So anybody, so when the law was passed in 2010, it was if you, there was some cutoff where you had to have enrolled or taken out your loan. And if you hadn't, you were ineligible. Now it was anyone who ever had a loan? That's who right. any had, anyone, anyone who had who, any federal loan balance at all, regardless of when it was? Could now opt into the system. That's right. Okay, that's right. And and some people, some people listening will probably say, "Well, wait a minute," but it's based on your income, and so you know, if your income is too high, you wouldn't qualify. And that's true. But we have to think about this kind of program in a little different way. It's true that not everybody qualifies, but the only people who don't qualify are people for whom it wouldn't provide them a lower monthly payment. So it's sort of a moot point to right. say that there are okay. ineligible and eligible people. Everybody's eligible. So they got the law through, and then they accelerated it. To make it start right away, that's right. Okay. So, so it starts right away. So, um, and, and that's the law now. Nothing's changed. That's the law now, right. and people have been enrolling in that system since about 2012. So we're at 15 and 20, 10 and 15 percent, and 20 years. 25 years was the old program. Okay. 
The program now, even I'm getting confused. Yeah, and the program now, it, well, the numbers all get smaller, Kevin. That's the theme. Okay, all right, all right, okay, all right. So, public the service loan forgiveness, Kevin, is that government programs get more subsidized? Is, public service loan forgiveness is ten percent of income, ten year forgiveness. Yes. The rate for everyone else, the the capitalist pigs out there who are just taking money from the system and not serving the public, it's fifteen percent of income in twenty years. That's right. Wait, so is it so you get a you get a lower it's ten percent income for everybody. Ten percent for everybody. Yeah, it's always ten percent income. Sorry. It's the loan forgiveness term that fluctuates. Okay. So it's ten and ten or ten and twenty. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are now. Yes. Okay. Um so how much does this cost? Um well, it's hard to know that okay. actually. Uh, there it's there's not a just sort of it's not an easy one number that you can point to that say this is how much it costs. Um uh, using some numbers that the Department of Education puts out in their budget, buried in the back of a thousand-page appendix, uh, you can get to a number of about thirteen billion a year. That's probably the low, the lower bound right. estimate. So thirteen billion a year. So as much as like the Title One program for low-income students. Yeah, that's right. Um, and as as much as the Pell Grant program was like ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, and and, uh, and is that based on a projection of growth, or is that like? Yeah, so so I should say what that number is because yeah. it's a little bit tricky, right? Because we've we've already said no one's really gotten loan forgiveness yet under right. this. So how can it cost thirteen mm. billion dollars? Well, the way that we measure what a loan costs is what is the lifetime expected cost of the loan, right? Might be a twenty year loan, might be a thirty year loan today, all in today's dollars. Okay. Uh, and so what we're doing is we're saying all of the loans that are issued this year, all of them, mm. and all of them that go on to use income based repayment, because not all of them will, those loans will cost thirteen billion dollars. Okay. So the loans issued this year over the lives of the loan in today's dollars will cost thirteen billion. So we think so we so every so we figure out all the loans that are made in a year and then we calculate what percent of the that we think we're gonna have to eat under the program and that we think that's thirteen billion now. Yes. So thirteen billion, right. we think that X number of loans will use income based repayment right. and all all those loans using income based repayment. And has that number gone up? Like so I saw yeah, you wrote something recently where you said, Oh, the uh, Cost of this program is now five times what they said it was a year ago, or something. So the cost of income-based repayment has always been going up, um, but like, but not just because more people were enrolled, just because it. So let's well, talk about that. Well, like, so so right. So so originally, what people thought uh, in Washington and the budget experts and the and the analysts, you know, around two thousand seven, right when this program got created, the assumption was that no one would use it, um, and that wasn't an outrageous assumption. Um, because no one had been using the old one, the old one, no one had been using the old one. Um, but of course this new one corrected a lot of flaws with the old program. It was more widely available. Uh, and the terms weren't as bad. They were pretty, they were decent, but they weren't amazing terms, right? 15% of discretionary income and 25 years before loan forgiveness. So it was still, you know, kind of legitimate to think that very few people would use it. Um, but that changed quite a bit with the Obama administration changes. The program became much more generous. And then the Obama administration also started advertising the program. Right, they were like, heavily. we need to, they, they, for a while, they're like, it's a bad thing that more people aren't doing this. Like, they felt like they had done this cool thing. And I think, like, the, the political context is important, right? So they come into office, they haven't been there for very long, and they make this, what turns out, I think, to be a pretty significant change and a generous change. 
during this time, because we're still coming out of the recession, the sort of uh, like cultural currency of student loan aggrievement explodes, right? And so, so I think we're actually a little off on this. Okay, um, I think the timeline right. on that is a little off. If these changes were made in 2010, that is actually before the student loan idea um, really got okay. started. But what right. we were looking at in 2010 was that default rates were at their highest point since the early 90s. Um, and we're only looking likely to right. go up. And so sort of, I think the backdrop was less like the political context, at least, at least for the first two years of having student loans as a thing, which didn't really start until about 2011, 2012. Mm. Okay. Um, and more so the like, we have this program, literally no one should be defaulting on a student loan. Why do we have these? Like I, I the default rate, I don't remember anymore what it was, but it was, uh, it was high and it was projected really only to keep going up because it's a lagging indicator. Mm. Well, but see, th- you know, Libby brings up an interesting point. You're right. See, we're all speculating on the why. I've never been able to figure out the why. There's no which, which why? why the Obama administration made the changes to income-based repayment. Why did they propose it? Why did they do it? There's no there's no paper trail. There's no public statements. There's no advocacy compa- campaign leading up to it. Nobody asked for it. There was no research. There was no study. Now, what I told this you wasn't about like a Tikas, right? this wasn't a Tikas thing before that. I mean, making no. IBR either more universal, more generous. I thought it was no. okay. No, no, because remember, Tikas. The Institute for College Access and Success was the one who issued the paper in 2006 saying, hey, we should have an income-based repayment at 15% of income, Mm -hmm. right? So they had just said that, and that program had just become available in late 2009. So for all intents and purposes, Tikas was sort of taking a victory lap in 2009. So they weren't, from best I could tell, they weren't advocating for this. Nobody was. This, to me, is something that came entirely out of the White House. So I think they were. I think they promoted it because they thought they should. But I also think it was a way for them to respond to the "What are you doing about the student loan crisis?" And they were like, well, "We we did something, so more people should enroll in this." Um, but it so it is okay. Uh, and so, how many people are enrolled in it now? Oh, I don't have I don't have a like raw number. I have a, a share of borrowers. Yeah, so okay. about about one in five borrowers whose loans are in repayment. Are mm-hmm. using this plan. Are using are paying it back on IBR on IBR income based repayment. Yeah, and um, that, but it's actually about it's over one in three dollars. One in three dollars okay. is being repaid in this, and that's because disproportionately people with high balances use this, which makes sense, yes. right? Of course, it, I mean it, it makes yeah. In some ways, it makes perfect sense. In other ways, it's a little bit strange. If you go back to what Libby said, that uh, the default rate was very very high. But, but the defaulters are not defaulting on high balances. They default on small balances. Right. And so so it actually doesn't make sense then that all these high balance people are using this because shouldn't it be the defaulters who are using it in the low balance? So one in five people, one in three dollars, we don't really know. No, you can't really say who's enrolled in loan forgiveness because you you don't apply for it until you've made enough qualified payments. But there has been an increase in the number of people having their payments qualified. Am I right in saying that? Uh, well, so so the qualifying payment sort of lingo is more related to the public service right. forgiveness yes. part of it, right? But the but the and 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 this is where it gets confusing, right? So everybody who uses uh, public service loan forgiveness has to use income based repayment, but not right. everybody who uses income based repayment is going to get public service loan forgiveness, right? Right. So public uh, income based repayment is more universal in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we don't know is you don't know. Uh, really, what are the incomes of people who are using it? What are their incomes going to be over that time? How much will they get forgiven? We don't really know a lot of that, right? Because this is a sort of snapshot where you you enroll in the program, you use it, but you're essentially accruing a benefit over 20 years when you're making these payments. So it's it's not easy to sort of 
just say what the cost or scope of the program is. Yeah, I'm sort of curious about um, disaggregating the public service half from the more general loan forgiveness half, because as I understand it, if we're looking at mostly high debt borrowers who tend to be higher income individuals. Right. And, and, and you tend to be grad students. Yeah. And and we're looking at 20 years of forgiveness. I'm curious, like, how big the concern is about the 20-year. My understanding was it was really the 10-year forgiveness that was the the major yeah. area of concern. But I have sort of fallen out of this debate in the past year. <laughs> sure. So. I mean, the, the, the 20-year forgiveness, I know 20 years sounds like a long time, right? But this was one of the papers that uh, Alexander Holt and I, Alexander here at New America, he and I did in 2012, is we showed that actually, you know, 20 years is not that long for people who borrow a lot of debt for graduate school. It's actually, and especially when you're paying 10% of your discretionary income, the payments are pretty low. In fact, if you look at many people who, who borrow for graduate school, they're kind of in for 20 years anyway in their payments. Like they're expecting, well, I'll probably be paying this off for 20 years. I borrowed 100 grand. Um, 20 years doesn't sound like an unreasonable amount of time to repay $100,000. And so it turns out the income-based repayment um, under the Obama changes was generous enough that it would not be unreasonable for someone to borrow $100,000, make a decent income, and get loan forgiveness. And I, I mean, I think when, so I, uh, my wife went to law school and borrowed money, um, you know, a, a not inconsiderable sum from Georgetown Law School, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, and and then we we took advantage of the refinancing. Yeah, the consolidation. Consolidation yeah. uh, bonus yep. slash scam that, so we're paying 2.75% forever on that debt. Yeah. Um, and they just automatically like re-amortized it to 30 years based on the on the When balance. you consolidate it. Yeah, just based that's on the balance because right. it was like $100,000. Right. Because that's how much, yeah. If you, can't, you can't go to law school for that much now, but this was 11 years ago. So Yeah. Right. So um, that's what I'm saying is that, yeah. that those were not unreasonable. You know, so 20 years, like if your payment is lower than it would be under that 30-year plan mm -hmm. yeah. and you're guaranteed to be done in 20 you win, right, right? Right, and so that's essentially what happened under the under the Obama changes. Right. Um, now, the Obama administration has actually tried to kind of put this genie back in the bottle, right? Because they've been they've been proposing some limitations. Is they, that, is that they have. Saying? They've been proposing limitations. Uh, what have they proposed? And, and so, so they've they seem to have sort of come around to this idea that. Um, Graduate students or people who borrow more uh, shouldn't qualify for loan forgiveness after 20 years. It should be 25 years. Okay. And and what they've come around to is sort of the the the, the sort of fatal flaw of income based repayment is that and and it's also kind of its benefit, but its its fatal flaw is that everybody gets the same repayment terms no matter how much they borrowed. So the guy who borrows ten thousand dollars gets the same repayment terms on his loan as the guy who borrows 150,000, right? This is just like, so alarm bells should just be going off everywhere. Like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why? Well, well, how much would you borrow if you if your payments were exactly the same for borrowing 10,000 oh, or borrowing 150,000? Yeah, okay, yeah, the, the terms. Repayment. Not the term, but like how much money I have to write a check for every month. Yeah, well, I, yes, Okay. exactly, which is essentially the terms. Right. It's, that, it's that same percentage of your income no matter right. how much you borrow. Right, so it's, it's right. some amount of money and then and then I'm done. That's right. And whether it's 10,000 or a million. Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, that's essentially the problem, right? And so, so what, what Alexander Holt and I suggested back in 2012, which was, well, you should have some sort of change in terms as people borrow more, mm -hmm. right? Because that, that corrects this flaw. So we said, you know, if, if you borrow more than X amount, then um, you, you don't get loan forgiveness until 25 years. And so the Obama administration has tried to kind of weave that into some of the, some of the terms of the program. It's not 
it's not the case for all new borrowers. Mm -hmm. That's not in there. It's, it's, you know, for some borrowers in some cases. So it's pretty watered down. Um, it's going to take actually legislation to change it. So they proposed it in their budget. They proposed it in their budget and some of these regulatory loopholes they've been using mm -hmm. to expand the program. They've tried to work it in, but it only applies to some subsets of borrowers. So like, why why is Congress not interested in doing this? I mean, particularly like a, a Republican Congress. Why would they not want to take up this idea and... I, I, I don't think it's that they're they're not interested. I think it's that they are, you know, this would be one of many changes they would seek to do related to student loans mm -hmm. and higher education. And you know, why would we just do this? Why wouldn't we do sure. a bunch of other things? And the problem is the other all the other things are holding holding up things that the, the Obama law. administration doesn't want to do. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. And and so there there is a concern that so you wrote a piece uh, you and Alex Holt wrote a piece a few years ago about Georgetown Law School. Um, where they had been essentially uh, telling their students, borrow as much as possible. You figure, I understood how this scam worked at one point, but now I can't explain <laughs> yeah. it. You explain it. All right. Uh, so what Georgetown Law was doing was saying, uh, come to Georgetown, take out student loans. And by the way, graduate students can take out unlimited federal student loans. And that's loans. super important for this it's Really discussion. important. Graduate right. students, there's no limit to the amount they can Undergraduates borrow. can only borrow how much? Um, it ranges from fifty-five as low as fifty-five hundred dollars a mm. year for a first-year dependent undergraduate, and is as high as as somewhere around twelve thousand dollars a year for an independent uh, later well, on. Like in their thirty grand or something. Thirty grand total right. over. So the, there's a lifetime cap. Yeah. There's a lifetime cap of thirty for right. a dependent for undergraduates. Graduate yeah. students can literally borrow. There is no hard limit. It's just tuition and living expenses. Which is which can be broadly and generously defined. Yeah, in Washington right. D.C., it's about twenty-five thousand dollars a year in right. living expenses okay. that you can borrow for at Georgetown Law. So back to Georgetown Law. So what Georgetown Law said was, come here, uh, Georgetown Law. Uh, you can borrow to pay for everything. Don't put down a cent of your own money. And when you graduate, um, you can go and you can work uh, in any nonprofit or any one of these public service jobs. And Georgetown Law will make your student loan payments for you if you're using income-based repayment. And then you would get them forgiven after 10 years under the public service loan right. forgiveness benefit that the federal government provides. So what they were essentially saying is, and they would, they would they put this on their website, you can, go, you can come to Georgetown Law and go here for free. But you had to borrow, of course. You had to borrow for everything. And so the danger is that they then increase their tuition by whatever that's costing them. And then essentially the federal government's paying for everything. Well, and, and you know, it's funny because we said, well, they have to increase their tuition to do that because this is a cost to them. And Georgetown doesn't have their own money. Right. The only money that Georgetown Law has is money they get from tuition. So if they're giving somebody else a benefit that costs Georgetown money, right. they must be raising tuition on other people to pay for it. Uh, or even, even the students. And they're still doing this, right? Like it's uh, like absolutely, this is, they're still yeah, doing so. it. They're still doing it. They're very proud of it. They're very proud of it because they, they believe that they are encouraging people to go into public service. All right. I have broad thoughts, but Libby, do you want to? No, you go ahead. So, okay. So, so uh, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, Jason and I worked together for a while, so we've been having some variation of this debate for a while. And I've written about loan forgiveness. So I'm kind of of two minds. Like on the one hand, it all sounds like, I think you make a good case that it's, uh, that the numbers were just made up. And, and the Obama like, administration, yeah, they, they it was changes. just round numbers, and it, they probably felt like going from fifteen to ten and twenty-five to twenty was making the program more generous, uh, proportionate to how much those numbers were declining, which is wrong. 
Which is wrong. And that's like mathematically <laughs> yeah, that's really, really no, wrong. And I'm so glad you said that yeah. because I had the hardest time convincing, I'm, I'm sorry, let me, reporters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, when they made this change, and we and Alexander and I had this finding that this is a really big deal, and the program was just about to take effect, and I would call people and I'd say, "This is a huge change," and they would say, "I, I don't understand. That, that's just that's going from fifteen to ten percent income in twenty five years to twenty. Not a quarter. That's, that's, that's not a lot. No. Like when you run the and, numbers, and here, actually, yeah. And here was my answer: You are lowering people's monthly payments by thirty three percent. Right? Imagine if a bank were offering you a refinancing deal on your mortgage and they would cut your payment by 33% by a third. They'd be like, well, sign me up, right? Right, And so that's what they did. So it's the two things together make it sort of much, they, much more generous. Yes. Um, so I would like, guess one part of the problem is people have a very hard time thinking about things that are going to happen 20 years from now. Yeah. Um, I would I would lump myself right. in with that. Like, who knows what's going to happen between now and then? We could strike oil and, how about you ten, know, how about under the capital. You know, no, I mean, yeah. I, I wake up and I'm st- in shock that we're almost at the first PSLF uh, yeah. forgiveness year. Like, that seemed so yeah. far in but, the future when we started but, talking about this. True, but I remember, but remember though, there's no, there's no downside to using this program. <laughs> Right? It's right. sort of like heads I win, tails mm-hmm. taxpayers lose. Right. That's how it's set up. Right? So, 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 yeah. so it's well, after Kevin another. has his yeah. breath, that's I have some thoughts on that, but I will I will I will defer to Kevin okay. first. Uh so yeah, so I'm convinced that it was it was uh rushed arbitrary and, and no one read the numbers and figured out how much it would cost. Uh I'm convinced that it's gonna cost way more than anyone thought. The other part of it is like the like the cost doesn't show up in the budget anywhere, right? So there's not like some committee chairman who's like, well shit. I just, you know, that's $13 billion I don't get to spend. Am I correct in saying that? Um, well, it, it does. It is in the budget. It's there. And so if you were to end the program tomorrow, okay. if a committee chairman were to yeah. propose legislation to end it tomorrow, you would be looking at something on the order but of like, $13 like billion it, a year in savings. When it when a year goes by and you run all the numbers uh, uh, and it's like, oh, it turns out it's more expensive, is it, is it all of a sudden like harder to, to fund the Pell Grant program? No. Why? So because it's it is a an automatically funded entitlement. So okay. it just costs what it costs, and the federal government will pay whatever those costs are by either raising taxes or cutting spending elsewhere. So, right. but so like a key part of this is sort of it just it's like some vague to the bottom line. There's no constituency out there that yeah. is like, well, damn it, I didn't want to spend 13 billion on this, uh, so I'm going to fix this problem so I can spend 13 billion on something I care about more. Well, yes and no, right? Because there is an incentive. There is an incentive to fix it in that, say, for example, you wanted to increase spending on the Pell Grant program. You could fix it and use the money, which is... That's right. Right. You could fix it and use the money, but if you don't fix it, you're not really losing money. That's right. If you don't fix it and it keeps getting more expensive, it's not going to cost you. Other than you could just sit there and wait for it to be like monstrously expensive, fix it and use that money for whatever government program you want. Yeah. And I worry that's a little bit of what's going on right now. It's like creating free money in a way. Yeah. Why isn't Congress interested? Well, if we let this go for longer and longer, when we finally fix it, because we know we want to, there will be more money. Yeah, that seems highly plausible, actually. Yeah. I um, actually, what I would say in that circumstance, right. if you were going to spend your savings, you should only be able to spend the original cost of the program. Uh, yeah, that would be some that would be some intellectually rigorous discipline that I don't associate with. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, so I, I buy that argument. I think um, the so the the problem that it like removes what little price restraint exists. It, like essentially creates this like 
clever graduate schools can basically figure out like there's no it takes any cap off the price discipline right doesn't it literally doesn't matter what we and charge not, and not just price discipline right, right. because w people are also borrowing for their living expenses right and so it takes the discipline off that which is probably where the marginal marginal borrowing is happening mm -hmm. right do i want to live in a crappy apartment while i go to grad school do i want to live in a really nice one right? those decisions matter those right. decisions become a lot easier with this program um, although, although, although people, although to Libby's point, like you have to have some fairly sophisticated financial calculus to figure yeah. that out. So, so yeah, extent, I want to jump in a little bit on this, and yeah. this is anecdotal evidence that I would yell at if somebody tried to use it with yeah. me. So I'm just gonna right. put that disclaimer out there. I do think the fear of large balances is something that has increased dramatically over the past three to four years. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about sort of the interaction between that. I mean, I do think that like I have to, oh my God, I have $100,000 in student debt is still maybe a more powerful incentive than, oh, it's all going to be paid off. You know, it, it, speaking from the people I know who are in this program, some of whom are in PSLF, some of whom have actually left, um, oh, it's all going to get forgiven is like right. generally not Although the mindset I Although you don't ever leave because your, your qualified payments just sit there. Yes, sure. Yeah, you, I guess you can go back. But I, I actually have a, a friend who just left the public a public sector for a right. private sector job that are essentially the same thing. Um, but losing PSLF was a part of it and part of our calculations. But it was not necessarily – I was the one when people were going to grad school. We were talking about this a lot. This was like five years ago. A lot of my friends were thinking about it. I was, I was like, oh, no, like you can get all this forgiven. It's fine. Um, and I was surprised by how much resistance there was to that sort of economic – Oh, but 20 years down the line, it'll be okay, calculus. I don't know. This is not like a question you can probably no, answer. No, it's just I, no, an I can. And thought. I think that so that that culture can change mm -hmm. and will. So, so to some extent, your concern is that like the cultural fear of debt is lagging behind the reality of how generous this program is. And if it and if the two come together, it'll be even more expensive. Absolutely. I think and it's interesting the cultural fear of debt yeah. has developed that, in yeah. That's what I said. Yeah, right. And yeah. That, yeah. That's what I said in, in, in 2012 is I said, you're right. Nobody uses the old program <laughs> and they aren't flocking to sign up to this for this one quite yet. But, but people will soon figure this out. It's actually kind of a complicated thing, to Libby's mm. point, to figure out what is the benefit. Right. But, but look, I mean, this would be probably the first time in history that the federal government left billions of dollars on the table and no one with graduate degrees showed up to get it. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, we are talking about a sophisticated group it's, of it's humans. The most, and I am it's not it's targeted that, to know, the most educated group of people in the right. country. And so it really is a grad students are the ones that are kind of going hard just because the loan balances are so much bigger. Yeah, I mean, if I, you know, if I were an enterprising, um, you know, financial planner, this would be my thing. This is what I would do. I'd be like, I'd help you with the retirement. I'll help you do this right. too. Here's what you need to be doing. So yeah, I have a couple zooming out thoughts yeah. too that I sort zoom of wanted to throw one, in. I have or, a huge yeah. zoom out thought, but I want you to go Yeah, ahead. I mean, yeah. I think mine may, may be sort of the same yeah. as yours, which right. is I think the huge takeaway here is not so much about the 20% versus 10% or 25% 25 years versus 20 years, so much as like what kind of subsidies do we want to do and who do we want to be subsidizing is sort of the, the biggest question underlying all of this and whether subsidizing graduate school is a rational thing for the federal government to be doing. And the, the other thing is that is sort of interesting to me because it comes up so much in these conversations is the role of graduate students in the debate over student debt. Mm, um, at yeah. the, at the, they are the people who have the largest balances. They are often the people who are the activists who are on the front lines and talking about it. Not mm. hashtag not all graduate students, but like certainly right. they are overrepresented in that conversation. At the same time, they're overrepresented in benefiting from PSLF and benefiting from loan forgiveness. Mm. And at the same time, we're in this sort of like new era, not deeply into this new era of like a graduate degree, which I do not have, by the way, being a thing that people are supposed to get. Yeah. And so 
this is, I don't know, like, this is just to me a really interesting, like, intersection of those three points at the same time of, at the one hand, the graduate students are, like, disproportionately loud compared to the people mm. who are really suffering under the sort of student loan system right. that we have. But they're also taking advantage of the benefits that really, I think, ideally were meant to benefit the people whose voices we aren't hearing. Yeah, I do, I, I do think that when, like, Dr. Jill Stein says, we're going <laughs> to... I have just been introduced somehow. It has been a long 15 months. I've somehow just been introduced to Dr. Jill Stein's thoughts on student loans. So uh, I welcome so I was this watching, conversation. I was watching the uh, uh, John Oliver show last night and where he laid into Dr. Jill Stein's proposal to uh, discharge all student mm-hmm. loan debt, the whole thing. Through quantitative so, easing. Through, through uh, uh, quantitative easing, exactly right. Just the Fed's just going to... Oh. Uh, you oh. didn't know this, Jason? No, I didn't know. There Jason. are worse ideas out there than yeah. oh. letting yeah. students borrow at the rate that makes I'm going to let you guys... I'm going to let you guys... You do your worst on the forgiving all student debt, the and then Fed I'll tell you what I think. The Fed is going to print $1.3 trillion and wipe out all student loan debt. That is, that is her, her proposal. And John Oliver, to his credit... Liberal John Oliver was like, that is fucking crazy. That is super ridiculous. That was his example of why we shouldn't take her or Gary Johnson seriously in this in this election. So she put out a statement today saying, like, objecting strongly to. And it was so funny because the, the headline was like, uh, Jill Stein debunks John Oliver. It was like written in, in like social media kind of optimized language. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's what they want to do. They want to. In, 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 in the press release, it was like, we're going to. Uh, uh, we, you know, we're going to wipe out $1.3 trillion in predatory student loan debt, as if it was all predatory. Like all $1.3 trillion was predatory. So to Libby's point, I do feel like grad students who, you know, are like there is a fundamental difference between going to grad school and undergrad, right? And like going to graduate school is a, a, a an economically rational act to borrow money in order to get basically skills and knowledge that have value in the labor market, full stop. It's not a rite of passage, you know. It's not getting a general education. It's not making. Do not have the like romantic person, emotional you know? attachment to grad right? school yet, though. I think we're probably like fifteen years away from that. Right. It's it's. I'm going to learn a skill so I can enter a career, and that's it. And people make rational financial decisions, and and so this bleeding over of that is you know driven, I think, by these like lack of caps. So Jason, you the other day, I think we're you know complaining slash making fun of a, like an NPR story where it was like it, everybody was kind of talking about undergrad debt. And then all of a sudden there was this sentence where someone was like, and I borrowed $100,000 to go to law school. And then they just kind of kept going. And and you're like, wait, what? Wait, what? You know, like literally, what, what, every, literally every student debt story ever. Literally everyone. Yeah. And that's not even that much money to go to law school now. <laughs> no, that's, no, that's that. a normal amount. Yeah. It's, you can't go to law yeah, school for yeah, that. I it, didn't, yeah. Again, like my wife went to law school, graduated in Eleven years ago, just borrowed for tuition, not a penny for living expenses because she was working full time. That was a hundred grand then, you know. So what is two hundred now? Something like that? Uh, no, it's about a hundred. Medi- median debt is about one hundred fifty thousand by for the time a, you get out for a law school. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's right. So it's kind of so there is this. So I think grad students are sort of free riding on the public's more justified sympathy for the student who. For the low-income student who needs a undergraduate degree in order to like that is the like that will be the difference about which life they have. Graduate from college, you go this way. Don't graduate from college, go that way. Uh, they don't have any money. The idea that they would have to sort of take on a lot of debt in order to make that step feels wrong to people. Um, but that and hundred grand for law school are like two totally different things, and they're they're very confused in this conversation. Well, that's, I mean, that's what I always say about income-based repayment for undergraduates, because they can only borrow about 30 grand. 
Income-based repayment is what it was supposed to be. It's mm-hmm. an insurance policy, right? right? If you'll probably pay back your loan, but if things go really bad, here's this thing for you. Um, for graduate students, because again, they get the same terms yeah. as the undergrads, it's not an insurance policy. It's basically a tuition subsidy. It's a massive federal subsidy. It's a massive, tuition. yeah, tuition and living expense subsidy for grad school. Right. Um, Which I don't think is what the Obama administration thought they were doing in 2010. If you had asked them. Oh, uh, is, is that what you're trying to do? No, Create but, huge, but now you know, they're... Spend $14 billion a year subsidizing law- lawyers? Sure, but like, now, now they're in good company with Donald Trump, who's made the same blunder. <laughs> so what is the... All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my broad point that I've been... Yes, I have one more broad point okay, after okay, your broad okay, point. Okay, and okay, so my broad point is this. Here's my broad point. And I, and I kind of wrote about this when I was writing about this like about a year ago in the New York Times. So one interesting aspect of the like debate about college costs that I, that I think is interesting is that it's a... It, unlike, say, health insurance, where we never had universal health care, and we still don't, we're just kind of making progress in that direction, depending on how you think about it. The The debate about college costs is, it, it is a call for a restoration of a bargain that actually existed in America before, right? And so, so like, there was a period of time of, like, 20, 30, 40 years when debt-free undergraduate college basically was the deal. So the thing that Hillary Clinton is saying you know, debt-free college. Side note, not coincidental, I think, that she keeps saying debt-free college and not free college. I think that's very deliberate. Um, and Even though her plan has changed, which is an interesting thing. She has really not sold her shift on that in a way that well, because I think politically that she, she just, probably should have. But, but, but I yeah. just think that that was just sort of like, what do I have to do to get yeah. Bernie Sanders to endorse me before the convention? And as soon as he endorsed her, I think she's running back towards where she started. We right? can save this. We can save this for next month. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I don't so, know. Okay. This kind of, like, yeah. Yeah, come on, guys. This, this kind of sounds okay. to me like yeah. people are like, oh, Donald Trump is just saying that to get yeah. elected. Sure. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> he doesn't really mean that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I keep derailing my own broad point that I want to make. So, so. But so I, I do think like debt-free undergraduate education was the deal for a while. Yeah, you know, like when I went to college, my parents, who were like mostly middle upper middle class, just wrote a check to the State University of New York for my tuition, and it was that was it. I, I, I like literally don't remember having a conversation about student loans with anyone I went to college with in the late 1980s and early 1990s because tuition was like four thousand dollars a year. So that was it wasn't free college, but it was debt-free college, and I and, and I we've moved away from that, and I think people sort of want to move back to that. Um, and the way we did that was by, you know, one, giving a bunch of money to public universities, and then two, saying you can only charge this much tuition. That was the system. We basically moved away from that system. Um, states don't want to spend the money or per your, you know, uh, budget analysis that we were tweeting about yesterday, can't afford to because they're spending way more money on Medi- Medicaid. Well, it's all those bargains, this bargain that you're talking about right. that used to exist. Yeah. The reason why it doesn't exist is because we've made a lot of other bigger bargains yes, that's in true. the Fair intervening enough. years. <laughs> why would you do that? Yeah. Uh, uh, so, that was, so we want to kind of restore that bargain. We don't want to do that. So what we're kind of doing, so like one argument is that we're using public service loan forgiveness to back into it. So like what we did for so the bargain went away, and then we but we needed to like pay colleges the tuition they wanted, and we needed to and so the way we did that without actually paying them was to just like subsidize loan programs, so like lending got bigger and bigger and bigger. But it turns out subsidizing lending and borrowing is a really bad way of making college affordable. It's just super complicated because it may, it turns the government into a lender, which has a whole set of like norms and values and language and procedures. And it's why the federal government is now like the world's biggest like asshole repo man that it mostly just kind of uh, uh, 
depending on your circumstances, right? But like for some people, you know, yeah, we're not discharging that loan. You know, we right. want the money, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. They have a very bad relationship right. with the federal government. And, yeah. And they've never had one before. Right, 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 right. So, so now, and so, so people don't really want that. And so what we're kind of now doing with public service loan forgiveness is kind of backing back into the same system. And here's what I mean by that. Before, the subsidy was available to everybody. It was very generous. Um, you, you paid, you know, one-fifth of what education actually cost. And then you went off into the world and you paid taxes and some people paid more taxes and some people paid less taxes. And there were probably people out there who, because they were like unlucky or they were lazy or they didn't make very much money, never quote like paid back their subsidy. But we didn't call them defaulters, right? We never looked at the, what their subsidy was and said, you've defaulted because you haven't paid it back. We just said, the system is a wash. Some people are going to like contribute more. Some people are going to contribute less and that's fine. What we're now doing is, so then we kind of moved to the system where we made everybody borrow, and the people who couldn't pay it back, we said, you're a defaulter. But everyone feels bad about that. They're like, really? Like, we're making defaulters out of people who went to college and all the rest of it because, you know, uh, they you know they wanted to be a social worker or they, you know, they had bad luck or whatever. Like, that seems kind of messed up. We feel really bad about these loan default rates. This whole, this whole political movement comes up. So what we're now doing is basically saying, you're not a defaulter. We, like, instead of just making college cheap on the front end, we say, borrow it all, but we're not really lending it to you because depending on your circumstances, we're going to forgive most of it. Now, uh, so I would have rather stuck with the first system. And, and like, people can't see your facial expression on the, on the, on the, <laughs> on the, on the radio. So, so, so stick with me here. I'm talking to Jason. I, okay. I would have like so, rather stuck my, with the first my system. My face says, is saying, wow. Yeah. Right. So my, my, I would have <laughs> rather stuck with the first system. But I, but I really don't like making defaulters out of college students who just like go to college, um, particularly undergraduate college students. And so I'm, I'm like very attracted to the idea that we've of say of moving away from that. And 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 the benefit of doing it through the federal government is we're not relying on state governments anymore. And relying on state governments to sort of keep this bargain intact didn't work because they won't do it because and, of. Uh, lots of reasons, some of which is federal mandates, but a lot of which is the kind of anti-tax and spending culture. That, you don't like, think it's Medicaid? I think Medicaid is one of the reasons. But do, you know, think- do you know the only spending category, the only two spending categories to change places in states' budgets over the past 20 years are higher ed and Medicaid? Medicaid is Isn't that like the two largest parts of states' budgets? No, though? it's I not. K-12 is still Okay, I was, I was is largest. Two and three. Yeah. But they switched be, places. Yeah. One eclipsed the other, right? That's that's a very that's big deal. Part of it, I, I mean, I used to work. I with would state say government. that's all of it. It's not all of it. I mean, it's not all I mean, Medicaid. I mean, because there because states are really different. You know, like the political cultures in states are really different, and some are pro spending lots of money, uh, and and there are still states that keep tuition cheap. New York is one of them, like where I used to live, high tax state. Um, low tuition state. There are there are states that are on the fast road to privatizing so, well, their higher. So let me so let me say this. So you said you know tuition was like four thousand dollars a year where you went right. to college, right? So what do you think net tuition is today at a public four year university? It, com- it depends on what state you're talking about. I it varies net, by five. Sure. So on average nationally, net tuition at a What's public that? At, on average nationally at a public. I four think year, you know the answer. So tell I me. do know the answer. What do you, what do you <laughs> think it is? If you paid What's four thousand back then, no, just tell me. It's about twenty three hundred dollars. Net tuition at a public four-year university. Yeah. So net of what? Net of your financial aid. That's tuition, not not living expenses and all the rest of it. But you weren't talking about living expenses before either. Right. No, that's true. So it actually costs less on average today than the number that you quoted as perfectly reasonable. Okay, but it doesn't actually cost less today. It actually costs quite a bit more. It costs $2,300. 
on that. It is substantially more expensive on an inflation-adjusted basis to go to a public university today than it was in 1988. Uh, True or false? Uh, depends on who you're talking about, right? But I mean, on average, net, I don't know what the net price was then. Actually, I'm 100 percent sure it was less. The net price was a lot less. Yeah. Okay, but you did say four thousand dollars was perfectly I, reasonable. I think that's what it was back then. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, we agree that it's gotten more expensive to go to public college, like substantially uh, so, more over time. No, I don't think the tu- the net tuition has not gotten substantially more expensive over time. No, no it I hasn't think gotten substantially. Right. No, at a public four year university, net tuition has not gotten that much more expensive. I mean, I think the college. Well, this board, is partly the shift yeah. from a like universal system to a need based aid system, right? Yeah. So you're netting out tax credits, and you're netting no, out, not tax you're credits. Net, oh, so okay. So not just, even tax credits. All right. So you're just netting out like Granted. Pell grants and all that. Pell grants. But this, the average is sort of. Of, I mean, it's net for everybody, right? It's net for everybody right. at a public four year, full time public four year university. I'm extremely confident it's more expensive to go to public universities than it was in 1988. Inflation adjusted. If I'm wrong, I will I will issue uh, an apology. Sure. On our next I, podcast, I'm, I'm sure it's more expensive, but not. Yeah. But but you quoted four thousand dollars as being reasonable. And now it must be 20, 30, 40, right? To be like really No, I didn't outrageous. say it must be 20, 30, 40. I'm just saying it like used to be like, I, I was using that 4, as an 000. example of how it right. used to be cheaper to go to public universities a long time ago than it is now, which I think is unambiguously right. correct. Right. But I, but I would argue that, the, that the, the tuition has not increased as much. The net tuition that people are actually paying has not increased as much as people well, think. Well, but you said that we're spending a lot less money on state higher education funding. So how did that happen? Uh, we are spending a lot less, but sort of where are we moving the money around, right? So we have a lot more out-of-state students, and we've, we're, we're charging out-of-state students a lot more money. Right. right? We also have a lot more students, though. We, than we, we have, have a lot there. more so students. We have a big Absolutely. increase in the number of students. Yes. Um, a big increase in the number of both students. Both as a percentage and in terms of, like, total numbers. Yes. That's right. Did you have a big Yeah, I didn't know I've lost so, it. So okay. I've been sitting here trying to get it back. I had yeah. two, and now I've, I, I can remember one of them, but I can no longer remember the other. So I'll go with one I remember and hope yeah. the other one comes back to me. Um I mean, the question, this is a little bit away from this, but the question I have is, is income-based repayment, like, regardless, like, take the forgiveness out of it for a second. Oh, and as I said that, I remember the other point. Take the forgiveness out of it for a second. Like, is income-based repayment, like, the logical way to run a student loan system? Or is income-based repayment, like, a nicer way of saying taxation? No, I... uh a nicer way of saying taxation. Yeah, I mean, if you're th- if you're thinking about income-based repayment as sort of a pure income-based system, I've been thinking been thinking a lot yeah, about no, the Australian system, the UK yeah. system. I mean, where you actually pay more if you earn more. You can't pay more than you borrow, though. But you could. You can't. So Not under the current system, right? I understand that. But like, I'm but, thinking about sort of the way that other systems work. Look, I would love a system of taxation where I, there was a set amount I had to pay, and when I paid it, I was done. Or before 20 years. Can you be a little generous? I'm tired. Can you be a little generous to the point that I'm trying to make? Which is like the idea of income-based repayment is as you earn more, you pay more back, which is the same idea of as progressive taxation like underneath it. It, It's different though because you don't pay more back really, right? Under this system, you don't. Under this system, you don't. But if you had a system- Yeah, I should have clarified my priorities a little bit. This is thinking more about internationally how Well, internationally, there's still loans and there's still balances, right? right? So they, and and it it just- uh, and aside on the on the international part, by the way, in the UK, the loan forgiveness is after thirty years, right? Not twenty. Yes. <laughs> the, yeah. The, and the, the 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 you know the ungenerous UK system, right? Um, but but they have uh, loan forgiveness after thirty. So uh, when I worked uh, on on Jeb Bush's um, uh, higher ed plan yeah. uh, as an advisor, um, we actually we Isn't did it kind of this. What Libby's saying though, isn't the Jeb it Bush is plan more like what Libby's saying? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there and wasn't a yeah. balance, yeah. right? Yeah. And it made it much more like a tax. So tell, tell people. So I. So side right. note. Uh, right. So yeah. So you were along with our former colleague Andrew Kelly, the co-architect of the Jeb Bush 
Hired my, grand, my greatest regret is that Jeb Bush dropped out literally yeah. like the week I finally was like, no, this yeah. is the week I'm going to be like, Jeb Bush right. has interesting higher ed ideas. It, I actually think it's, it's super interesting. It's my it's greatest sort of regret like, of 2016. I, I think it is destined to be a like cult classic among higher education wants, sort of like the first Velvet <laughs> Underground <laughs> Like the first Velvet <laughs> Underground album, you know, like only 10,000 people bought it, but they all formed rock bands. So what was it? Tell us what it is. Um, what, what it was. So was. So, <laughs> so Livy, though, this is this is more like what you were talking about. Yeah. And this is, is, is much more like attacks. And, and I do think it makes more sense it's not so much a tax, right? Because it's a little bit more like a use fee, right? Like you use this money to right. go and now you pay back. So the plan was what? Tell so us. the plan was uh, you got a, a line of credit, a balance of $50,000 that you could draw down to pursue higher education, any level of higher education. And for every $10,000 you use, you pay back 1% of your income for 25 years or one and three quarters of the amount you borrowed, whichever happened first. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so you could pay a lot more than you would pay with a loan. There was no balance uh, per se. Uh, and uh, and there's no interest rate. So it, it did work. It wasn't exactly a tax, but it worked a lot more like a tax. And, and the beauty of that was that you could actually collect it on your taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, We've killed the bottle line. We've killed the bottle so line. So we're, we're, we're in a good spot. Uh, uh, yes. Um, so, so that's how, I mean, it was a lot more like a tax. And, and I think that's a better way, that is a better way to do it than, than the loan. And so there's no defaulting? Right. I mean, in theory, there's no defaulting, right? I mean, people said with income-based repayment, there'd be no defaulting, but there's still a lot of defaulting. But I mean, there's um, really no defaulting there's probably, because there's no loan. Th- there would be no more defaulting than uh, people who don't uh, pay their income taxes right now. Okay. And there's still some of those. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, are we kind of like... If you uh, have an actual job and are having your payroll deductions taken out of right. your yeah, paycheck. Yeah, you know, I suppose that, you know, if, if, if the paperwork was a little, if, you know, if it wasn't just right, you could actually... You know, note on your taxes that you could just say, "No, I don't have one of those obligations," and then and then you would be in default. Right? I mean, so this is my point. Like, I feel like the sort of the theory of uh, we want to subsidize higher education, so we make choices about how much and to whom, um, and then we want people to have some stake in it, and we don't really want to create these these sort of circumstances where the in, in many cases, like vicissitudes of life push you to this point of being a defaulter. Like there's actually a lot of agreement about that, right? That like, that, that the system of subsidizing higher education shouldn't be a system that almost necessarily creates a defaulter class or a like super burdened class to, to expand it from the defaulter class. And in some ways, the Jeb Bush plan is just another way to do that. It, it is. I mean, well, I mean, I would say I don't know, though. I think I think you're right in theory that people don't we don't want there to be this defaulter class. Mm-hmm. But there are eight million people in default on their federal student loans. And that, it, that's a million more people than a year ago. Yeah. What's going on there? Why? Are there yeah. What's going on there? I don't I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't really know. Is it because they're not in, enrolled in IBR and they should be or? I'm not sure that IBR would really help them. Maybe it would. Maybe it wouldn't. Because they still have to pay something. They may still have to pay something. There's still, there's a lot of paperwork to do every year. They may not think it's worth it. I don't, we really don't know. And right. it is one of the things that uh, very few people talk about uh, in this in this policy space is the, is the, the 8 million people in default. Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't have to have it this today, but the interaction between student loan debt and the recovery is something we should talk about on another podcast at some point. Because I think the fact that student loan debt is not recovering at the same rate as other stuff is really troubling um, for future policy. The other, so I kind of thought we were going to talk more about PSLF, so I had a lot of like public right. service hey, thoughts yes, that I'm going to no, no, go for it. Unload onto all of you. Right, um, right. Uh, I think it's, it's five twenty. Let's yeah, give you some ten minutes. Yeah, my last, my last like yeah. big picture sort of thought idea is like. 
I feel like public service loan forgiveness is a little bit like if you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail of education policy, which I, I don't think education policy wonks are like specific to having this problem, but I think it is endemic in education. I'm not convinced that student loan debt is why people don't go into public service. And I think that like, oh, but only if we, we would only repay your loan is like, it's the kind of idea that made a lot of sense to me when I was only doing higher ed. And now that I'm doing other things, I'm like, oh, like I, you know, I mean, we like underfund and disrespect public defender programs. That's, you know, that's not the reason lawyers like having student loans is not the only reason lawyers don't go into being public defenders. It's also hard and mm. awful and often underfunded. I mean, the I read a lot about this um, kind of randomly when the Missouri governor got appointed as sort of a stunt to defend a case. But, like, I learned a lot about the horrible state of public defense systems and, like, student loan debt is not the number one or number two or even number five reason those systems are in bad shape. Um, teaching is something, you know, if you talk or around K-12 at all, like, student loan debt is also not number one or two or three on the list of reasons people don't go into teaching. I, you know, I... If the idea is to provide an incentive to go into public service, like, I just wonder if this is the best way to spend that money and if there aren't better ways well, and even, to even do if that. There That's is, sort of my big thought yeah, here. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think even if you, you can find some margin somewhere, yeah. it's a really expensive and inefficient way to get to it. Well, right? then it gets you know, down like, to, like, it's a nice thing to do. And, like, yeah, yeah, it is a nice thing to do. But, like, it's a nice thing to do at the moment is not our criteria I mean, for evaluating public I, I like working for a think tank. I've never worked for a for-profit company in my life. This is my career. I'm not going to change now. You know, like I worked for the government for a while and I worked for so a non-profit So now we have the, antic, the anecdote to contradict <laughs> Libby's anecdote that, yeah, no one's ever going to do public service for 10 years. What's that? So <laughs> I feel like, no, so no, actually I think this is the same point. I think this yeah. is two sides of the same point, which yeah. is like the broad definition of public service as yeah. defined in public so right. service loan forgiveness. Yeah. No, I think it's not what like normal people think. I think her point was actually complementary to your point, which is I think more we're all making, I think we're all yeah. making yeah. the same oh, yeah, point yeah. to a degree yeah. here. Yeah. Like I have right. friends who work for NPR since you brought it up. Like I, yeah. when they do it, I think they legitimately are doing a public service. Are they doing more of a public service than my friends at the New York Times? Like, or or no. you? No. Right? No? And so, but this is a good point. Yeah. No, I will not say I, what I do is on par with what they do. Yeah. But like, or, or, absolutely, like people at the, at, you know, the, the tax status of and the, the I mean, the even more to get to a for-profit point. The even better not. example is, yeah. is our accountant doing more public service than the accountant at the uh, restaurant across the street? It's like literally exactly the same job. Well, and this is, I mean, this is, this is one of the, you know, we've, talked, doctors, we've talked right? a lot like about. like non-profit hospitals and like for-profit hospitals. Oh yeah, right? that's big, right? Yeah, you're yeah. still doctoring people. Like, yeah, yeah, right. So, and, like, and people don't even know. Do you, I mean, like wherever hospital you go to, do you know, like, I guess Georgetown, I assume like GW Medical Center is non-profit, right? And yeah, I'm kind of going through, the, I have right? no idea. Is Sibley Hospital no non-profit? Idea. Where I, my I daughter was born beats me. I don't know. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, or, I think this is like the, yeah. the. The idea of public service loan forgiveness is based on a conception of public service that is not the normal person's no. idea of it. No, it's not. And and, and I, the way and I, I think we should have a real conversation about like how you encourage like actual public service, public service. Well, like, look, I think that the, the loan the, the loan program actually the income based repayment program does all the heavy lifting in that regard. Mm -hmm. You don't need the ten the loan forgiveness at ten years, right? If the argument is that people should be able to take these jobs, they're somewhat lower paid, mm -hmm. uh, and and they are going to borrow a lot of money uh, to get a graduate degree, then they can pay back based on their income and get the same loan forgiveness terms as anybody else, and. That, that's why I use this example of a Washington Post reporter and an NPR reporter making the same income 
working, you know, a mile away from each other, get drastically different governments. Up You're just trying to make reporters feel even more aggrieved since they have a high potential for agreement. We are the most aggrieved professionals. Yeah, I think true. public school, and you know what? Public school teachers might be the most aggrieved. I have no complaints. But yeah, I think like... If we want to encourage public service, let's have an actual conversation about the public service that needs encouragement and how to do that, rather than being like, eh, if you work for a 501c3, like, well, right it, after it gets into this much larger set of issues that, again, my colleague Alexander Holt and Jason's collaborators written about, which is just sort of the whole idea of like nonprofitness is really messed up in this country. Because, you know, because one thing universities can do to, of course, to like help their students get into this program is just reemploy them because they're all nonprofit. You know, so right. uh, I was going to say this is getting very close to the right. like tax status conversation we have about publics yeah. and for profits. No, that's right. I mean, I think it's so. I mean, that's a whole and and but so this is a symptom of that in a way because because uh, there's no other way to do it, right? There's not like the government's going to do anything have a, a a more specific and narrow list of who's public service and who's not. Right? Uh, not you know no, not I mean? necessarily public service, but they you know they, there was a long history of providing loan forgiveness for specific right. careers. And, uh, yeah, I think right. That's, I yeah. think that's yeah. more legit sure. than like just sort of. The teachers broad, and all like, that stuff. You know, right. I don't yeah. think it's going to sure. move the needle yeah. all the way, but if it moves the needle a little right. bit, like, I don't have a problem with forgiving teachers' loans or forgiving public defenders' loans or doctors at, like, indigent hospitals. You know, if the problems that we're having, like, sure, that's fine. Well, the other, you know, the other thing that's... Uh, so I'm going to just... Yeah. Uh, final thoughts, because I want our good colleagues in the studio. And, of course, we do have a debate coming up tonight. Yeah, um, yeah I need to go and, to the office. So, uh, final thoughts. Jason, Libby. Oh, geez. I don't know. I think I've had them all. This okay. was fun. Somebody yeah. else have a final thought. Anything um, we haven't said you want to say? No, no, I think that that's good. All right. Um, well, thank you. Uh, so we'll see if this education comes up in the third debate tonight. It hasn't come up yet. Really. Do we want to make election predictions? So, uh, do we want to make election predictions? Um, so I think the presidency is a foregone conclusion. I think the Senate is no, interesting. No, call margin of victory. Call margin of victory <laughs> yeah. in, in terms of, in what, ter- in what terms? I, I want to hear vote percentages. I don't know how I've come up with this right I now, think, but I think we should call vote percentages. I think Hillary Clinton is going to win by five and a half points and get 320 electoral votes. Uh, wow. Um, I, I really, I, I've actually, I haven't really been following this election. I actually believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I believe, I actually so I don't know. Really, yeah, I, don't, I, don't know. I, could, I couldn't place an you, you, informed yeah. prediction. Right. Kevin and I are the one here in a month anyway, so whoever yeah. whoever loses yeah. this actually has to supply the alcohol rather than making yeah. our guests do it. Um, and that the, the Democrats take the Senate. So I'm doing math in my head very quickly on a four-way race. Okay. Um, but I will say, yeah, Democrats take the Senate, Republicans hold the House, presidency... I'm going to say Clinton, 52, Trump, 45, Johnson and Stein making up the remainder of those votes. Okay. I will write that down in a post-it note when I get back to so the So you're office. saying seven. Yes, I'm saying seven. That, that, well, now that I say wait, that, no, that, wait, that sounds what, like 52 a to what? No, well, it's a four-way race, remember? Oh, okay, so, all right, all right. So they get the, perf- the final 3%. Yeah, I will, okay. I will figure this out all in these, more like, detail alleged and post Johnson it on Twitter and Stein so that the alt-right can come Actually don't me. vote for them, as, which is the historical pattern, right? Like when you poll... Right, so I, I actually had a conversation yeah. this morning with my boyfriend who knows more about polling and such than I do about like why you poll a four-way race rather than a two-way race. This is a very large digression. But basically the idea is like, it's easier if you want to cast a protest vote, it's easier just to not go than it is to like physically take the trouble to go gotcha. and vote for Jill Stein. Um, well, thank you for the but... advice on the protest vote, how to cast one effectively. Yeah. Oh, I don't think effectively. Yeah. I think oh, I think you can yeah. cast your vote effectively. You can yeah. cast however you want. But if like your yeah. motivation is I don't like anybody, like, you know, yeah. voting is a pain and, yeah. you know, everybody should vote. I don't endorse that. But that's sort of the idea here. So. Um, well, thanks to both of you. Thanks for Jason for making the trip and thanks. buying the booze. We really appreciate it. Um, thanks, as always, to John, Amanda, and Simone, our fantastic production crew. 
um, here at New America. And thanks to you, our listeners. Um, we will see you after the election in November. That is the Goodbye. time that will happen. Goodbye. Yes. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.